How could you move from teaching to end up writing scripts for TV and directing some of Hollywood's biggest names in a theatre festival? Also, what's the difference between writing scripts individually as opposed to writing as part of a large team? Let's find out. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. My name is Ian Cleverdon and welcome to the audio podcast series designed to help students, early career professionals or indeed anyone who wishes to develop their personal and professional lives. This week I catch up with Steve Bennett. Steve is the Director of Drama at Cambridge University's Downing College. Originally from Oldham in England, he's written hundreds of episodes of primetime TV shows including Coronation Street, Emmerdale, Pete Practice, The Royal, Where the Heart Is, Holby City, the list goes on. He's also taught and directed at the National Theatre and Shakespeare's Globe in London and at the Williamstown Theatre Festival, Yale and Carnegie Mellon Universities in the US. Steve is actually based in the US and I caught up with him via Zoom whilst he was in New York. Hang on to your headphones and your speakers for a fascinating journey into the world of script writing and theatre. Steve Bennett, welcome to Half Hour Mentor. Just tell us a little about your first job. What, what was your first job and what did you want to do as a career? My first job was in an inner city boys school in Manchester, um, teaching art. It wasn't what I'd originally intended to do when I was getting ready to leave school. I actually wanted to be a journalist. And I had a place in um, in a journalist, I think the Daily Mirror ran it um, in Portsmouth, but I, I turned it down for various reasons. I think I might have been a bit scared of leaving home at the time, but uh, 17, 18. Uh, and the other was that I'd been uh, poorly for uh, for a while before that. I'd had glandular fever and been pretty bad. Uh-huh. So um, I went to Manchester Poly um, and was uh, was doing a, an education degree and fi- with fine art as its sort of main thrust. And um, I ended my first job was uh, was at Mosterbrook High School in Manchester. It was an interesting situation because the school, um, which was you know, with the best one in the world, it wasn't the most affluent area uh, with, uh, you know, with the most um, well-off catchment, shall we say. Um, and they had a, a fully equipped pottery, which nobody would use because they were frightened of what might happen, basically. With, uh, with pottery comes mess and <laughs> potential missiles and things like that. So um, nobody would touch it, but I thought this is, this is a great idea. Um, and what turned out to be their biggest fear turned out to be its advantage that the the kids absolutely loved it and they respected it and what was required of it because it was like a little factory. We still wanted to maintain their aspirations to go on and, and do things academic and college-wise. But while they were there, just to be able to do some work that they could see a result from, that they could, they could work on something for a week or two weeks and then take it home. And so they respected that process and that sort of life experience of the kind of thing that they might end up doing and it became completely the opposite of what people had expected people thought it would be a disaster that there were all these machines and wheels and kilns and things that could get broken or 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 wrecked in some way and yet the kids respected this environment and we had a great time and uh, it just uh, it, it was a little hive of activity that um that was different not in any ter- in any way lesser than, than the sort of academic side of doing maths and French or whatever it might be. But it was it was just a different aspect and it just gave them a different way of, of getting some kind of results that, that were gratifying. You know, you could see you'd done something and you could be proud of it and you could take it home and show your mum and dad. 
That's how I assume that on that basis then that it, they probably were hadn't been trusted to do creative stuff previously. It was right. the fact that you know they found this new lease of life and actually they felt trusted and respected. That's right. That's right. And also the the other thing was that from my point of view, whether it was conscious of it at the time or not, that there was a gap that needed filling. That there was something that had potential that people were were wary of, and it just needed somebody you know a naive idiot like me at you know 23 or whatever it was just to say oh i'll do that i'll give that a go and even whether i'm not sure whether i learned that lesson at the time but i have repeated that process in the past and it, and it's proved fruitful that sense of seeing a gap and thinking well i'll give it a go what's the worst that can happen you know mm-hmm. and um and it turned out to be a, a really enjoyable and profitable couple of years was that after you'd studied at Manchester Poly, which is now Manchester Metropolitan University? Yes, yes it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was immediately on leaving there. Um, I, I went to Moston Brook, and then Manchester Education Committee decided to do this bizarre thing that they called um, during reorganisation. They called it, which basically meant sacking every every teacher in Manchester, so that they could cut down the numbers of teachers and save a lot of money but also that the people who they wanted to keep could have been employed anywhere. And so I might have ended up traveling 30 miles to work in the morning instead of three and had no say in it. So uh, so I, I left Mostenbrook and went to work at Boothall Children's Hospital where I worked in psychiatry for a couple of years. Wow, that's uh, a big change. It was a big leap, yeah. And I had to learn a lot very quickly um, in, in that time. It was difficult, it was a tough job, it was very rewarding. Um, you've got to sort of latch on to small rewards there. But you, you certainly learn tolerance of foibles. Um, not that the sick children have got the, the, that's not the foible, they've got the illness. But the way you, you, you learn a lot about human nature in a situation like that. Mm-hmm. And from there, um, I was given the opportunity to, uh, to go and teach in Switzerland, uh, the International School of Geneva. Um, and uh, what went with it, which was very attractive to me, was um, was signing for a local football team, um, and so uh, it was uh, it was a no brainer, really. <laughs> yeah. Just can I just stop you there, then, because I mean, some of the listeners now will be thinking, "Wow, so how did you get that job in Switzerland? You know, wh- where did you look? What? How did it come about?" Well, that that was a case of going through every educational supplement advertising thing that I could possibly find. And that was a job that was in the Times Ed, you know, where everybody looked for jobs at the time. I don't know whether that's still the case or not in, in teaching. It probably is. And uh, I was looking at every advert that looked that looked viable, and um, they wanted somebody who uh, who fit my uh, qualifications and criteria. And also, one of the guys who was interviewing was the coach of this local football team. So I, I had a, an in. It was a bit. Uh, it was perhaps not entirely. Uh, level playing field because they were looking for, they were looking for a midfielder for the for the promotion push basically so that helped me get the job in in, in the first place but I, that's when i first started getting into drama into youth theater and from there got involved with a group called the international schools theater association who toured all over europe and and also had an affiliate in america and after i'd done that for a couple of years in europe touring to theater festivals learning stuff and also starting to teach stuff as well i went over to uh, to the states uh, to get involved with with their american wing as it were mm-hmm. and uh, and then from that started working with adult theater education 
and then went into professional theatre in the States because it just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, I was doing youth theatre and it was in a place called Williamstown in, in Western Massachusetts, which I didn't really know until I got there. I had a massive professional theatre festival with huge star names. Hollywood closes down at, uh, for summer. And so a lot of American film actors try and rework their skills, their stage skills during the summer. And so we'd get names I'd only seen on, you know, on the credits of, of great films, you know, like Paul Newman and people like that. Paul Newman, John, really? Christopher Reeve. And uh, I worked with so many people out there, Rob Lowe, Rebecca DeMorne, and, and people, you know, and you wouldn't think, how did that happen? Well, that's, I'm just about to ask that because, you know, the, the, in two minutes or so, you've just explained you, you got these particular roles. So it was in Switzerland. And again, you know, we're, we're focusing on creative arts in this series of the podcasts and think, well, I, I can hear listeners going, hang on a minute. How did you get from Switzerland to America to working with Paul Newman and Christopher Reeve and the likes? How did it come about? I think it's, it's a case of seeing the possibilities and going for them. The, the international schools thing was really interesting. I got to travel a lot. We used to do, uh, well, they used to do youth theatre festivals in capitals all over Europe, where, where there was an international school, basically. Uh, so we'd be in Istanbul or we'd be in Brussels or Rome or something like that. These schools would host, each term, a different school would host a different festival. And we would go and organise workshops and classes in various aspects of, of theatre. A lot of it was devised theatre where you, you've got no script. You just go in and you talk about maybe issues that the, the class has, that the young actors have, or issues of the day that, that are of interest. And you would, we would devise theatre from scratch, basically, from exercises, from them writing stuff and from pooling it all together, from collaborative efforts, basically. And, and that's, how it, that's how it worked with that side of things. And I think I must have done a decent job at it because the people who ran that organization said, we have a, a branch in America, which is a, a, a summer school where we do exactly this. We devise theater. And so it was a case of, well, yeah, I'll, I'll give that a go. And so I went out there and we did um, youth theater over there. And then because it was a small community in, in Williamstown, it's only a small college town, but there's a huge professional theatre organisation there as well. And so you start to meet other people in the same game and you start to talk to people and you meet people in bars and, and somebody says, oh, we're looking for this. And it turned out that their young youth theatre company, which was an affiliate to the professional one, was looking for somebody to, uh, to direct and to sort of coordinate and stuff. After I'd done the youth theatre for a couple of years, they invited me back to do the, the adult stuff. And just purely by accident, they were about to do a production of Marat Saad, which had been a Royal Shakespeare thing in the early 70s. Um, and uh, huge, like 60 people on stage all the time. And they had a Broadway choreographer, a very famous Broadway choreographer, supposed to be booked in for it, Anne Ryan King, who did cabaret and all that jazz and all, just, I mean, just off the scale. And my only choreography experience was I'd done some fight choreography. And I'd done some Commedia dell'arte movement stuff. I did a lot of movement work. And Anne Ranking had to cancel last minute. And they were desperate. The artistic director summoned me into his office and said, we're really struggling. Can you help us out with this? Can you do some of this stuff? And it turned out that because it wasn't a dance musical, it was a musical, but it wasn't all about dance. It was just about the uh, inmates of an asylum 
having to be moved around like traffic so they didn't bump into each other. And the psychiatric uh, experience you had probably helped a little bit with that. <laughs> it kind of did, actually. You know, you think, what would that person be doing now? And, you know, there were people off in their own little world or people watching or people trying to take part and being rejected and all this kind of thing. So the movement was about traffic and, and it actually suited what I'd done. And so we, it was quite successful. You know, it, it was one of those things where the one instruction I was given by the artistic director was, you know, whatever you do, don't make a mess of this. But I didn't. And uh, and it went quite well. And so from that point on, um, it stood me in good stead to get other work. And so, again, it was a case of, well, can I do that? Oh, I'll never know until I give it a shot. And it was terrifying initially, but actually after a week or so in, into the job, I was really enjoying it. And um, it was a real eye-opener for me. I thought, I can do this. I wasn't sure I could do it until I'd given it a try, but it worked out. And so that's kind of what gave me the base in the theatre work I've been doing ever since. And then from that, and this is where the story gets a bit crazy, uh, I came back to England and went for a completely different reason, went to uh, Madrid for a couple of days for a, a break, for a holiday. I had all my documents stolen and couldn't get back into the States and was completely stranded. It was all to do with visas. My visa for Carnegie Mellon had, had gone and I couldn't get one back and all that kind of thing. Uh, and so I was in London, living in London, and uh, I had a few contacts at the National and the Globe, uh, people I'd worked with in, in other places or people who knew what I'd done. And so I started picking up work there. So I was working part-time at the National and part-time at the Globe, which was handy because you could walk between the two. But it didn't pay very much. And my friend, who I'd worked with for years on the international school stuff in the workshops and, and what have you, had just started writing um, film scripts. And he'd written, um, he'd just written and helped to produce uh, a film called Mike Bassett, England Manager. Which was uh, which was been quite popular uh, since then. This must have been what the mid nineties, I would think. Yeah. And he said, you know, if you're interested, why don't you why don't you write something? Why don't you start writing writing stuff? And you'd not written anything at this stage. It was purely um, teaching and, and directing. Yeah, yeah. And I did the classic that everybody tells you you should do. I'm not quite sure whether it's a, a great um, a great piece of advice, but people tell you you should write from what you know. And I think that's true to a certain extent. You should write from what you know in terms of dialogue and personal interaction and emotional situations. But I don't, I think you can still write from what you know if you're writing a space epic that's set in a, you know, on a starship and so. It's still um, human nature, isn't it? And absolutely. there's relationships yeah. there. Yeah, and things, you've got to write stuff that connects with the people who are watching, you know, even if it's uh, if it's an alien environment, you've still, it's still got to be a human story, basically. Mm. But I went the whole way and wrote um, a one-off film script that was based on Older Market, which is where I'd grown up. So I did know something about that. Um, and about uh, it was about two guys on a flower store, one who's been a musician and been successful but packed in because it's an impossible, horrendous life. And the other one who's aspiring, an aspiring musician who won't believe that, that it's a crazy way to go. And so the other guy allows him to have his dream. It's, it's a romantic comedy, basically. And, um, and I sent it to various places. And this is going back when you had to print stuff. You know, this was 100 pages. 
and you had to you had to go to whatever the printers on the corner was and pay for a hundred pages to be printed. Then you had to pay for it to be posted. And so what I did was look in the writer's handbook, and this is what everybody should do: see who's reading unsolicited uh, manuscripts, see who's, who's reading scripts, look for agents and producers who will read stuff and get your stuff out there. And then, of course, you end up waiting for months and you've got to do that very awkward thing of after a few weeks writing saying, oh, I hope you received my script. Just wondering if there'd been any. And so that's, you know, the awkwardness of it now, which I had to do as well. Eventually, somebody got back and said, we really like this. Um, Will you come in and meet us? And I thought, "This this is the most exciting news ever. So I went to a meeting in Golden Square with a production company who were making This Life. If you remember the series, This Life, mm-hmm. that was their main thing. And they liked the script. The first thing they said was, when I sat down was, we really think this is great. Uh, we couldn't make it. It's, it's not for us. So from all that being up, up and thinking, this is fantastic, to like, oh. Um, but they said, we'd like to follow your career. And I said, what career? <laughs> <laughs> And they said, well, well, surely you're going to carry on writing. And uh, I said, well, yeah, I probably will, but what do you want me to do? Well, we, we usually like to see another script. Um, they, and they, but they said, we'll keep in touch with your agent. And I said, well, I haven't got an agent. So that was the break. They said, we, you need to get an agent, and that's one thing that we can do. So they sent this script to an agency, even then, the agency called me back and said, we never take anybody off one script. So I'm thinking that I've just, I've, I've been banging my head against the wall for six months here. And that's probably how long it t- took from me first sending the script out to anybody to get a positive response. And so I thought, oh, this is, I'm, I'm just wasting my time. I'll go back to, I'm fine at the National, I'm fine at the you know, Globe. I'm not earning any money, but at least I've got something that you know I can focus on. Anyway, two days later, the agency, which is called The Agency in London, phoned me back and said, we've decided we'll take you on anyway. Um, we think that um, you could do it. They, they could see the potential in the script that you'd already done, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So within a very short time, I was out having meetings and I got a job within a couple of months, within a month actually, of, of the agency taking me on. And uh, I was writing an episode of London's Burning, which was, that was in... A, that was an ITV um, drama, docudrama, ITV like, drama, wasn't it? Drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and ITV about London firefighters. Um, and it turned out to be the final series, which uh, um, I hope it wasn't my contribution that, that <laughs> led, to, led to its demise. But I, I got a job on London's Burning, and that sort of gave me, again, a bit of a base to look for other work. And I think what happened after that was very quickly, we've got a new writer here who's from the north who can deliver a, a decent script. Where are we going to look for Coronation Street? That was the first and uh, within three months, I was on Coronation Street. Wow. Uh, I just and was that the agency that put you in touch with the yeah. Coronation Street team? Yeah, yeah. And subsequently, I ended up writing dozens of episodes of Coronation Street and more than two hundred episodes of Emmerdale after the fact, and various other things: peak practice, uh, the Royal, uh, where the heart is, born and bred, all that stuff. And and I think what happens is that it's much as you might aspire to write Oscar winning films or whatever or BAFTA winning one off dramas. But I think what happens is that if your agent finds that you're half decent at something, that's where they'll keep channeling you. I think I did a decent job on the soaps. And eventually it was like not that I couldn't get off them, but 
it would have been like starting again. Mm. And so if I was going to write a sensitive historical two-hour drama, then I would have been going in as one of those blokes who writes Coronation Street, you know. Mm. And so is that my niche? And so that it actually almost became harder to, to step away from them. But I was incredibly lucky very quickly. And that's that's what I think that's what happened. There. So th- there's certain things there. So, for example, like, I don't know, Born and Bred, um, if you yeah. say write, write that yourself. Um, but then you're in a team of, I don't how many writers are there at, say, Coronation Street or Emmerdale? You've been a- Usually, yeah. Um, both Coronation Street and Emmerdale. There's a few more on Emmerdale because there were more episodes. But Coronation Street would have 18 to 20 writers at any one time. And because you wrote and worked in blocks of three or four weeks, then you would get one episode of that three-week block. Uh, some people might miss out or want to miss out. Say there were 15 episodes in a three-week block then you, you would get one of the episodes, which you right. would write yourself. You would go away and write yourself eventually. But the process to getting there was a much more collaborative process. And there would be meetings once a month where you would go and you would be talking about what you planned to do with the storyline that you'd been given that was based on what you'd talked about the month before. So we would mm-hmm. talk about a story the month before. We would be given the episode to come back in storyline form with the next meeting and then that's the episode you would go on to write for the next meeting. And so you were always doing more than one, three actually. You know, you'd be doing the one you were writing mainly. You would be planning the next one and you'd be topping off the previous one. So and how far a, are you writing in, in advance of, sort of I suppose, it being live? About eight weeks, I think. The filming of an episode would be usually a two-week process. So you would an episode that you'd, you'd finished would probably you wouldn't see it for six to, something like six to eight weeks mm. and in that meantime it's it's been edited it's gone to the producers the editors they've come back at you and you've done rewrites and and then it's finally been been signed off maybe two weeks after you thought you'd finished it basically and that's that's one of the things that i, I wanted to to emphasize about writing for television particularly and that's there are lots of great writers but the ones who are working are all great rewriters that's the key to television writing. There are brilliant writers who can't sustain that kind of job because so much of it is coming back at you saying, can you change this because? Can you change this? And it's often not artistic decisions. It's often because an actor has has, has been ill or it's it's because there's been a change in the circumstances in on the street. One of the sets has, has been flooded. So can you move up? those scenes out of the rovers and put them into the corner shop and so on and so on. There are so many uh, imponderables that keep weighing in on, on what you're writing. So, so you're got, having to rewrite in a way that is it, not through story changes or somebody's no. changed direction. It, like say, actor's illness or yeah, something absolutely. that is beyond anybody's control. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. And, and often the circumstances of, of, the, of the acting company will change the natures of the storyline. You'll, you'll be planning a story that will take character X up to their wedding at Christmas, and then you find out that character X wants to leave the show. Or, or, is, or is in panto. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, yeah. that, that was always a big bone of contention. You know, we've got this storyline, and, and then you would get, yes, but X wants to do panto because they earned a fortune in panto. Mm-hmm. And so you're thinking, we've got to change the storyline now because this star has to be accommodated. Very, very frustrating. 
You mentioned about the um, collaboration bit and then there's a writing by yourself. What's the difference? I mean, obviously the rewriting bit you mentioned, that's a skill in itself. What is the difference between you writing by yourself and thinking that's the story as opposed to then going to the 20 people around the committee, if you like? Yeah, that's that's tricky. And and again, some people find it more difficult than others because essentially it's you're constantly having to measure your ego against what your circumstances are. If you write by yourself, then for a certain time, especially usually in your first draft, you think, this is all fabulous. This is marvellous. And who could possibly not appreciate the, you know, the wonders of this, of this writing? You get, get it then to your producer or to a group of other writers, and somebody's going to say, oh, but what if that happened? And you think, that's, that's my writing you're messing with there. But then you, you take a step back and you think, actually, that's, that's a pretty good idea. In fact, that idea would improve my writing or it would improve my episode or whatever it might be. And so what you need to do is subsume your ego in those circumstances. This is in the group circumstance and take on their idea, but then augment it with other stuff that has been triggered by that idea. So it gradually gets better and better. And you hope that that's how the collaborative process works, that it's a kind of upward spiral. Because as it improves, other people say, yeah, and what if so-and-so did this as well? And you think, oh, yeah, that's going to be great. And so at its best, the group writing process is a, a really positive collaborative experience. And once you get used to that, and once you get used to the sort of subsuming your own ego to the possibility of it being improved by everybody else's input, then you're still going to go away and write it yourself anyway. And it's still going to have your name on it. So if, if your ego needs to be assuaged, then once you see it come up on the credits, when the theme tune starts rolling in, then you'll get over it, you know. And, and and you can still feel pride in your work individually because essentially it is you that's written it. The dialogue has come from you. The main storyline has come through you. So there is that difference. And sometimes you find that if you are writing a longer show, where you, you're spending most of the time on your own, you just need some some input. You know, you'll hit a wall and think, I'm really struggling with this. So sometimes it, it's good to just be able to pick the phone up and say to a producer or an editor, you know what, I need a bit of a kick here in, in terms of to get me to the next place. Hmm. Uh, I mean, certainly if you've been work, used to working in that collaborative um, environment, then once yeah. I suppose you're writing by yourself again, that must be That's quite right. tricky. Yeah, yeah. 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 Let's wind forward to the present then, Steve, um, yeah. as Director of Drama at Downing College, Cambridge. What does that involve? And if, if, if that feels like you're almost back to your roots in you know, the, the early days. Yeah. And, and also, if I'm honest, I've always got more enjoyment out of the theatre, out of the collaborative experience, the shared experience in the theatre, than I did with television. Even though the rewards are significantly less in terms of finance, um, there's something about the theatre and the and the buzz of it and working with people in the same room to achieve a goal uh, that you then put in front of an audience. And, and it's the immediacy of it has a whole different energy. And and I missed that when I was in television. And, and I'm, I'm really enjoying having it back, working with students um, who are anywhere between 18 and the early 20s and uh, often writing their own material so that I can use my writing experience and a certain sort of sense of what works to be able to help them shape their writing as well. I took the job on about just over 10 years ago at, at Cambridge, and uh, there is no curricular 
drama taught at Cambridge, even though it's got a reputation for drama that's kind of second to none, really, uh, through um, through Footlights and the ADC and and, and the, you know and the people who've been there and and, the, and of course its network, which is important. There is no drama actually taught, so what you get are incredibly talented students who've got imagination and they're so inventive and and they're smart and they want to be able to create and produce and make theatre but they haven't got the tools they haven't been given the structure and the technique and so that's what i'm there for basically so these um, students are um they might be, they're not studying drama they're studying no. english physics yeah, it could be anything geography natural sciences ancient history whatever but they um a lot of them are very keen to act and to write and so we we try and give them that platform um that's that's basically the mission statement is to give people a platform for their work that step is the trickiest one for a new writer particularly or a, a young director or a young actor it's like who's going to see my work who's going to believe that i can do this and it's catch 22 nobody will give you a job unless they've seen your work and they, they'll only see your work if somebody's given you a job and it's you know and and it's that's incredibly frustrating so that what we try and do is say to new writers particularly send us your work we'll look at it and we'll we'll help you put it on we'll we'll give it a platform we'll give you a stage to put it on and so that's what we try and do for half of the the job is that and the rest is giving people a chance to act and and be involved in in theatre that they might not have had previously and and also teaching the structures how the techniques we we have brilliant some brilliant actors uh who can really engage and they've got that emotional connection that all actors need and it's very difficult to teach but what i try and do is to give them the structure is to show them the sort of craft of it to make them understand how to engage an audience how to connect with an audience and some of the best actors that we've we've had have struggled with that and until they start to pick up technical ways of communicating little the tricks basically because we all know it's a lie you know we you know you're all there to listen to a story and somebody telling you a story that's that's none of it's real but you become so engaged with it that you suspend your disbelief and for the hour and a half and that's what we try and teach as well both in the writing and in performance and and in directing how do we connect how do we engage emotionally with an audience and that, and that's uh, what I try and do there and and um you know just small things that, uh, that that people don't really get about acting and about performance that actors the best actors just like the best writers are rewriters the best actors are really good listeners and so that's why your ego is subsumed as well that's another example of just parking your ego to interact with another person because you're listening to another actor is what makes the audience engage as well the fact that you're connected the audience will take the cue from you and so and little tricks like that it's all about the craft and and so that's that's basically what I um what I try and do and also there was somebody was talking on on television over here in in the states um last week about lighting the runway for people who have all the skill and all the talent and they're all soaring away above your head but what you need to do is light the runway for them to land and and i thought it was a really nice analogy uh mm. to say that and then that's what we're trying to do uh just to give them somewhere to bring bring it all together basically uh so that people can see their work and that's the thing that for any new writer or actor get seen get read there are far more opportunities than people imagine you know you can put a show on if you're really determined you can find somewhere to do it 
it might be upstairs in a pub or it might be in a, a cafe or somebody there'll be somebody in your community who will tolerate the mad idea of you doing you know your one man christmas carol or whatever it might be or one woman christmas carol which would be more fun and look around and also check all the time on the internet this didn't happen when i was starting out in telly particularly or in in theater theater more so but if you look on the internet there are all kinds of things being offered now that weren't offered when when i was starting off ytv yorkshire or uh, granada or london companies or independence because loads more independence now obviously they're all setting up courses for people who've not written before a lot more um bame opportunities now for writers a lot more lgbtq plus opportunities and the adverts are there and even if you've got to go in at ground level if you've got to go in brewing up then that's great because you're through the door and then when somebody's saying oh we need a storyliner uh, somebody's left that's when you can put your hand up and say well actually that's you know I, I think i could fill that take every opportunity you can but look for stuff make things happen you know be be proactive rather than wait. The phone never rings. You only get jobs when you've got jobs. That goes back to your uh, fact earlier on where you said, well, you know, I don't know whether I can do it or not, but if I don't give it a go, I'll never know. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And you find, you find that you might well be a duck in water that, uh, as opposed to a fish out of it. It's, yeah. And it, you, you might surprise yourself because, you, you know, you, you see it as, wow, that's the magic. You know, that's the world that I'm trying to enter. And what happened to this weird barrier that I would have to have a magic spell to break down? Mm-hmm. Suddenly you find yourself on the other side of that barrier, you know, and, and you think, oh, I can do this. And, and I, I might have a bit of imposter syndrome and think they're going to find me out eventually. I've still got that now. But if you keep doing it, then the opportunities will, will come. Yeah. And I really think that people should be determined to get in at any level. Keep writing, keep working at it. You know, I, I have a friend who's now a very successful crime novelist who wrote his first novel on the train going backwards and forwards from work about 15 years ago. That And he's, since then he's written 20 bestsellers. But he was, he was writing because he was determined to do it. Then he just set himself... And it was kind of a captive audience for himself on the train. I've got two and a half hours commute every day, so I'm, I'm going to use it. And so he, he wrote his first novel. It wasn't perfect, and it had to go to be edited, And it, but he got it seen, got it read, and he made a few contacts. And that's the other thing. If you can make any contact at all, that, that who will you can just call and say, is anything happening? Is anything happening? And the other thing about that is once you've made those contacts and they do show willing to to give you a hand if they possibly can. Sometimes they can't, but everybody will, if providing that you go about it the right way. Don't give anybody a chance to say that, you know, forgive any uh, sort of use of profanity as it were, but just don't piss anybody off on your journey upwards, because you will find that the person who's just brought you your tea, next time you go into a meeting, has just moved up a step. And then next time you go into that meeting, they've moved up another step. And then three months or six months down the road, they are the producer. And if you'd spit your tea out six months previously and said, I'm not drinking this, go and make me another one, then you're not going to get an episode because it's that's how it works, you know? So yeah. try and be nice to people. If you watch an episode of Coronation Street, then somebody has made a, a cup of tea for that actor before they went on when they were in a foul mood and that's what puts them in a decent mood and it made them put in a decent performance. So that cup of tea was just as important as somebody giving them a line, you know, because it's what, it's what made them feel comfortable 
and that's it's so important just to to try and respect everybody for what they do because everybody contributes you know so steve thanks ever so much for just a great insight into the world of writing and to directing and acting it's been wonderful uh, i always ask every guest this final question is that knowing what you know now and everything you've been through what one piece of advice would you give that younger self who was teaching pottery it's it's a tricky one that and and i, I would go back to the uh, that sense of trying trying to make sure that uh, that you you haven't upset anybody along the way but i also think in practical terms as well what you need to concentrate on i think what what i would what would have helped me a lot is having structures and frameworks in place that I didn't necessarily understand at the time. And not not trying to overreach, doing something that is within your scope at that time. When I first started teaching, this goes right back to that pottery thing. The guy who was my boss said, one of the worst things you can do with a student is to give them a blank piece of paper and say, do something nice on that. So because the only thing they can do is make it look worse. But when I thought about it, I realized what he meant, that it's just so intimidating unless somebody's given you instructions, unless somebody's given you a framework. So he said the best thing to do on a blank piece of paper is draw a frame and then it, tell your student, work inside that frame and only use circles and triangles to make a pattern or only use this, that and the other or only do flower shapes or something and then expand from there. And what I try and do now with students at Cambridge is I've given 20 minutes. Your your idea, your vision, your play has got a 20-minute structure. So you write within that structure. If you can do that, because half the time you're editing yourself as you're going through it, you're already starting to work within a process. And once you've done that, and if you can do that successfully, it's not easy. Then you can start to think, I'm going to expand this story now because I wanted to talk about this and I wanted to talk about that. But even then, you would say, I'm not going to go over 80 pages. This is a 20-minute script. You write for British Soap, ITV, it's 27 minutes, and that's it. Anything out of that gets cut. And so you've got to get used to writing to a structure and disciplining yourself. And those are things you don't really realise. You just think, I'm going to create, it's all going to be wonderful. But it's the structure that helps. The structure actually makes you more creative. Georges Braque, the Cubist artist, said, too much colour is the same as no colour. And it's, it's true. You give somebody too many things to throw at the canvas and you just get a mess. But you give somebody a structure and they'll they'll create, they'll do something that's that's positive and something that's that's creative, that's they've channeled the creativity basically. It was fascinating to hear about the approaches you need to take when writing as part of a large team, as opposed to when you work in isolation. You can also really feel Steve's passion for teaching and I love the point he made about providing a framework to give your students direction. And never considered this to apply to writing, but when you think about it, it really does apply to any form of artistic creation. My thanks go to Steve for sharing his amazing career journey with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the series wherever you get your pods and review the back catalogue. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media or by searching for Half Hour Mentor or even via the email link in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and until next time, bye for now. Mm-hmm.